Hello and welcome to Reclaiming My Theology, a podcast seeking to take our theology back from ideas and systems that oppress. I am your host, Brandi Miller, and we have a heavy one today. I'm joined by Tamise Spencer-Helms to talk about partner violence. This conversation felt really important to me to have because of the specific ways that purity culture both creates the context for, upholds, and then provides few pathways out of domestic and partner violence situations. As we have this conversation, I want to give some content warnings. First of all, we use strong language both in our general conversation and in recalling one particular incident. I also want to name that we briefly mentioned suicide ideation, though we don't go into any depth on the topic. We do, though, talk about domestic violence, emotional abuse, and various types of abuse that happen in these kind of situations. So if any of these places are sensitive, triggering, or too much for you in this season or in general, you might want to pass on this one. I am super grateful that we can have these kinds of conversations because I know that there are many people who are survivors of violence in the community. There are folks who are trying to figure out what that means for them right now. There are folks who are in safe situations, and there are those of us who want to be supportive friends and family members of folks who are. So with that, please join me in this conversation with Tamise. Alrighty. Well, Tamise, welcome back to the podcast. It's been a bit of time, but I'm glad that you're here today. So thanks so much for your time today. Thanks for having me, and, you know, you know, this is coming. Uh, we ask the same thing every time because I want my folks to get to know who you are a little bit before we go into the stuff that we're going to go into specifically because the topic today is so intense that I feel like some level of getting to know feels extra important to me. So I would love for you to describe in this season of your life, Denise, what does it mean to be you? I am a non-binary Black woman uh, living at the intersections of being fat and Black and queer and educated, chronic pain, I'm a survivor and a parent. So I think what it means to be me right now is staying kind of grounded in my light and fearless about my goodness as I navigate like all of that stuff in <laughs> uh, the ways that it creates issues and problems and come to Jesus moments <laughs> for me. <laughs> So that's what it means to be me right now. Uh, so uh, really light, simple, casual stuff that's taken probably Real no simple. unlearning or yeah. disengagement from structures that you've been a part of. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, easy breezy, beautiful cover girl. <laughs> well, tell me a little bit then about what you do with your time. How do you spend your time? What kind of work do you put your hands to right now? Yeah, um, I'm really excited. I just picked up a job with uh, Q Christian. So I'm doing a lot of their programs, uh, de program development and management over there. I'm still running um, Subculture Inc., which is my nonprofit that uh, is removing barriers for Black students. And so we're we're moving and shaking over there. And then I do a little bit of uh, consulting for a mentoring company uh, close to where I live. So that's what I'm putting my hands to. And when I'm not doing that, I'm just chilling and doing magnetiles uh, with my kids. <laughs> <laughs> magnetiles go a long long way you can get you yes, get your money's do. worth out of them things <laughs> yeah. and them joints is slippery too don't get caught up for sure but at least when you step on them it isn't like a lego so we'll take that for what it's worth <laughs> well as you know we're in this series on purity culture and while you and i are going to talk about intimate partner violence and domestic violence in general and i'll talk about why we can use those distinctions as we want to use them and specifically why we talk yeah. about those in the spiritual context but I would love if you could describe a little bit of your context with purity culture. How has that intersected your life? Yeah, what what has purity culture looked like for you? Yeah, I mean, I think, so I am, um, I was thinking about this and I really didn't realize that I was being indoctrinated or inducted into purity culture. It just felt like part of what it meant to be a Christian and that this is how Christians embrace and 
express their sexuality. Um, and so by the time that I came into white evangelicalism, I hadn't had a whole lot of conversations about purity or sex. It just kind of like I learned, I mean, I lost my virginity when Pacey and Joey lost theirs on Dawson's Creek. Like that was my like sex education. <laughs> so it wasn't like I really knew that purity culture was a thing. It was just like, if you love Jesus, this is what it looks like. And I think now kind of as I'm unraveling all of that, I'm realizing like there was this other aspect to all of the toxicity, which was really kind of like embedded in this purity concept. And I think it played into probably the ways I thought about marriage and thought about myself, but I obviously didn't realize that at the time. That makes a lot of sense. Also, I love when black people are like, you know what I fucks with? Dawson's Creek. <laughs> hey, you know what I'm saying? Shoot, I'm telling you, when Pacey and Joy went on that trip and she lost her virginity, every kid at school and high school I was in, I think I was in like 10th grade, uh, everybody lost their virginity that weekend. <laughs> it's the truth. I'm not even lying. I 100% believe you. I 100% do. Which is so interesting because I think that a lot of Christian subculture spaces are like, we are the only ones shaping how people engage with sex, sexuality, all of these concepts, these complex concepts that we don't even really know how to talk about. And yet there are yeah. these simple instances that shape our worldview really deeply. So even as we have this conversation mm -hmm. about partner violence and domestic violence, like in these kind of broader mm -hmm. categories, I feel really aware of a lot of the kind of statistics or dynamics that are present. One specifically being that as the research has been out around these topics, there has been this kind of thing that Christians say as a point of pride that I think is really pathetic, which is there is no higher instance of domestic or intimate partner violence in Christian spaces than there is outside of it. And they're like, see, we good. And I'm like, I don't think that's a statistic that you want to be engaging with or to have as a point of pride, but it's usually used as a way to discount the systems that are upholding this kind of violence that exists. And so as we start to talk about the intersection of purity culture and partner violence or domestic violence, I would love if you could give us some uh, guardrails, some defining spaces. Yeah, what what is that? What does that look like? How are we going to describe that and talk about that today? Yeah, so I think it's, I, so I'm going to just frame it the way that it uh, revealed itself to me. My partner is the therapist, like, so I don't have the DSM definitions or anything like that. Sure. But for me, it was being engaged um, in a relationship where my vulnerability was constantly exploited, uh, where my character was constantly assassinated. Um, and I physically felt unsafe. I mentally felt unsafe. I spiritually felt unsafe. Um, and it was all coming from this person who the church and even my theological foundations at that time had set up as a leader in my home. Um, and so I, now looking back, I'm thinking, okay, so this was a, I was kind of doomed. I was conditioned for this, I think, in a lot of ways, because I didn't know um, to call it anything other than the way things were supposed to be. But now in hindsight, it was definitely an abusive um, relationship. And, and there was a lot of emotional, psychological, and physical violence. Well, I'm so sorry. That, I, I know that my own sorries don't yeah. do anything in in your experience and in the broader sense of how you are in the world. But I, I just feel, and I, and I hear in your story, the stories mm. of many others that I have held over the years. And I hear specifically the kind of uh, confusion and conflation of the theological with the spiritual, the physical, and even that phrase you use, like this person who was set up as a leader in my life. 
And, and that tells me I can I can extract a lot of the theology from there. And so I would love for us to to um, add some layers to this because because you described a bunch of different types yeah. of abuse, right? You described sure. spiritual abuse, emotional abuse, physical abuse, which will entangle with sexual abuse in pretty specific ways, and then some psychological abuse. And I think that those it's a giant Venn diagram where all of the pieces start to overlap. But I would love if we could talk a little bit as we're doing that about some of the ways that abuse gets talked about in the church, because I think it will help us to be able to talk about some of the theologies that then get put onto it. Because for me, like when I was growing up, I would hear people say, conflate conflict and abuse. Like you're just having marital conflict or marital, Christian's favorite word, strife. And that it became Mm -hmm. one person's responsibility, usually the victim of abuse or the survivor of abuse, who needed to take on the onus of reconciliation or of forgiveness or insert whatever, like grace, mercy, those kinds of Christian words in order to, the verse that was used in my space for women was win back your husband or like win your husband over, or like mm-hmm. win your unbelieving husband over. And so the same kind of application of principles was being used for like both people who were Christian and weren't Christian, but also just to be like, you gotta be responsible to make your man better and therefore not abuse you. So it then becomes your fault that you are being abused. And so I think that the combination of the spiritual and the psychological abuse alongside physical abuse became very prevalent in those kinds of ideologies. I'm curious what you think about some of these concepts in their broader implications. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm thinking about how you're told to be, uh, you know, the whole Proverbs 31 woman. <laughs> but in my case in particular, being a strong black woman, I even had to make it look uh, fierce. And I don't know a a way to explain that. So I'm gonna try my best, Uh, but I had to spin a lot to maintain the image of being a strong black woman and also being kind of like crumbling inside. And I think as people are writing their stories and telling their stories, we realize that a lot of people of color, especially women of color, are crumbling inside and having to put on these facades. And I think for me, the only, I guess you could say oxygen or light I was getting in my marriage was when I was leaning into this persona of a strong, black, godly, fierce woman who was a theologian and a speaker um, and at home crying myself to sleep at night, locking myself like in the bathroom, reaching out to folks. And so the ways that um, I saw the church and the church framing abuse was in the phone calls I would make. Um, mm. I would call friends like on the verge of, you know, SI or, you know, even times I felt like I was going to go to jail, <laughs> um, let the reader understand and calling friends and having them say, did you pray? Maybe just take some deep breaths. You know, uh, what does the Lord say? Is the Lord saying anything? What, you know, Um, picture the budding virtues um, in your husband. So it was just like, they didn't really create space for me to call it abuse. And I think partly because they didn't have a framework for Mm -hmm. abuse. I mean, I think about like, you know, my ex was definitely narcissistic, had narcissistic personality disorder. And so when I think about how white Jesus functions, um, there's so much similarity, the grandiosity, the like, if you don't bow down and worship me, I'll throw you in hell. If you don't say the right prayer, I'll throw you in hell. Like, if you don't do these things, your life will go this way. It was just very much when you compare the characteristics of narcissism and you compare the way that Jesus, white Jesus 
was kind of explained and presented to us, I was conditioned not to know I was being abused. And the people in my life, it's no fault of theirs, but they were conditioned not to call it abuse. Mm -hmm. It was a growth edge. It was an opportunity to become more like Jesus. It was a sanctifying time. It was a wilderness season. Mm -hmm. You know, there were all (laughs) kinds of poetic, um, empty language around it. But I think, I mean, honestly, I think in a lot of those cases, most people I was talking to during that time were going through um, situations that I would now call abusive, Mm -hmm. but we just didn't know. We didn't know, you know, we were conditioned. I mean, we worshiped a narcissistic savior. So why would we not make love and dinner for a narcissistic husband, Mm. you know? So it was kind of difficult to get out of and untangle. That makes so much sense to me, especially in the ways in which you're describing a disem- like a systemic systematic disembodiment process. You're, you're describing, okay, yes. your friends are telling you these messages that are so spiritual and high above and far away, but you're having an embodied experience of fear, of physical pain, of proximity to a person who is harming you in all kinds of ways that are probably undescribable in in many senses. And all of that is being separated from your body into an esoteric thing way out there that yes. only God can control or define. And and, I, and I'm compelled by this idea of what white Jesus does and how white Jesus is, because I think that that plays so deeply into how we think about this. And I want to come back to that in just a second, because what I would love for us to do real quick, because I think there's going to be so much, I think there's just so much that we can <laughs> talk about there. Uh-huh. But I would love to talk just firstly about how we see this intersecting with purity culture, mostly because I think those conceptual frameworks will, uh, that there's there's some conceptual frameworks that we can fill out with the theology. And, and one of the ways that I think maybe I can start us is just by thinking about how uh, marriage is seen as the best thing that can happen in your life in purity culture, that purity yes. culture is the solution, that in in purity culture, marriage is the solution to all of your problems. It's the solution to men being insecure and problematic. It's to women being uh, emotional. It's a way to erase queerness from church outright. And marriage is like this great godly solution to all things in the world. And what you're promised in purity culture is that, one, when you get married, it will be the best thing ever because it's going to create a lot of protective barriers around your life from people who would exploit you or abuse you or cause problems in your life. And there is a way in which you, like marriage is is the thing that you then become responsible for protecting with violence. And it's one of the only things that Mm -hmm. Christians will outright say needs to be protected with violence unless you're in kind of nationalistic patriotic spaces. And so marriage (laughs) becomes the thing that you both pursue And then sex becomes the marker of that thing. And then once you're in that space, because you've been given no tools, no wonder there's going to be abuse. Like, of course, there's going to be abuse when you have no tools for understanding how to engage with your own body, your own mind, and your own relationship to others. And I think when we add that white Jesus lens of domination, control, and submission on top of that, it makes sense to me that purity culture would prime people for both being abusive in and of themselves, not knowing how to check that, and not knowing how to engage when we are ourselves abused. You know, I don't think that my ex knew any better. I think, I mean, often the Bible was used. 
And the thing that is so frustrating was like, there were so many passages. I mean, there's so much fodder for that. <laughs> um, and so it would just be like, you can't, to be gaslit with the Bible is a whole different kind of an experience. It's, it's like, because you're being gaslit by God and the, the levels to which you turn in on yourself. I mean, I really feel like purity culture disconnects you from yourself. And then all of a sudden you get married. So you get this like sort of this, you know, evangelical VIP pass. That's the way I felt like it was. It was like the backstage pass. Like, you know, everybody can come to the show, but only the married people get to go on the retreats mm -hmm. and come over to the pastor's mm -hmm. house for dinner. Right. Like, so it was a mark of mama, we made it. Um, and so I think part of that played into the way that purity culture played into that for me as a black person was like, there's not a whole lot of desirability uh, for black women in those spaces <laughs> anyway, because I think we are the exact opposite of the image of the pure woman, right? Like the pure woman is a frail, thin, beautiful white woman mm -hmm. in a white dress and black women's bodies are typically not shaped that way. Um, our moves don't move that way. And so I feel like me just getting married was a way to say, I'm not out of the game. And I feel bad about that, but I know mm -hmm. that like uh, my motivations for marriage was like, I'm getting close. I mean, at that time, I mean, now, I'm, I, now I am 40. So it's kind of like, I was not that old. At that time thinking I'm getting up there in age and I feel maxed out. Like I need to like, I need my like certificate, mm -hmm. <laughs> right? Of achievement yep. um, in evangelicalism because it was like, I've done all the things, but why don't no man want you to? Mm -hmm. So it was kind of like, kind of pushing your way. Um, and no one ever asked me whether I wanted a man, you know what yep, I'm saying? Of course. <laughs> um, but the main thing is like, does a man want you? And like, what are you doing um, to make yourself desirable to a man? But it was kind of like, again, this sort of, I felt like in my discipleship, I was trying to be sort of discipled into being the sort of a middle-class cishet white man. Mm -hmm. But then in sort of the ways that I thought about my body and the way I exist and take up space, I was supposed to be a thin, frail, quiet white woman. Mm -hmm. um, and I was neither of those things. Um, and I, I do think that that, that purity culture um, is the it's come it's kind of like this this trojan horse to kind of solidify that specific um wickedness of the way black women were treated mm -hmm. like in our country yes. uh it just really it really messed me up totally. um and that's not even to get into like sexual pleasure and knowing your own self mm -hmm. and knowing what you like um and so you you have no concept of those things when you enter a marriage for the most part because if you did masturbate you're getting talked to about it from the platform. Mm -hmm. Usually somebody's like doing an altar call about it yep. um, or talking about how horrible it is. And so it's there's nothing but shame surrounded around mm -hmm. that. So there's all of this kind of stopping up, right? Like, and the church is saying, if your body gets that release and it's not in a dream, <laughs> then you're in, you're in trouble with God and you need to repent and you need to call your accountability partner and confess. Mm -hmm. So all of this stuff is kind of, it's, it's really disgusting mm -hmm. and it really serves to really bifurcate a person from themselves. So how on earth are you able then to stand up for a self that's already diminished <laughs> in a marriage that's abusive? Like it just doesn't, it, it, it just doesn't work. A hundred percent. And it reminds me of this quote that I was, I've been uh, reading this book, Christianity, Patriarchy and Abuse. 
um, by Joanne Carlson mm-hmm. Brown and Carol Bone. And one of the quotes, she, they, they say this, uh, our acculturation to abuse leads us to keep silent for years about experiences of sexual abuse, to not report rape, to stay in marriages in which we are battered, to give up creative efforts, to expend all our energy in the support of others' lives and never support in our own, never and never in support of our own, to accept it when a man interrupts us, to punish ourselves if we are successful, to deny so habitually our right to self-determination that we do not feel we have an identity unless it is given to us by someone else. So let's talk about the theology of it, because I think that that quote is a really helpful framework to understand how this gets embedded theologically. Because I know that almost Mm -hmm. no church, like every church leader I know would say, abuse, domestic violence, intimate partner violence is evil. God hates it. It's a problem. But there are all kinds of other things that make it so that the church is a hotbed for those things. And for me, the first thing that I think about is specifically the ways that the church primes us both to be emotionally abused and to emotionally abuse others. Because I've been thinking about the tenets of emotional abuse lately. And like they are things like uh, that you're hypercritical or that people are hypercritical or judgmental toward you. And I'm like, okay, well, if if your God says that you need to constantly be judged, and that you need to be hyper vigilant in your criticism of self and others, that is an attribute of emotional abuse. Um, there's this idea of someone Im- invading your boundaries and ignoring your boundaries and you know, invading your privacy. And I'm like, everything about Christian theology and evangelical space says you have no privacy, you have no boundaries, because God gets to mm-hmm. use you. People get to use you. You are in and of yourself a vessel. And then if you are a woman, you are doubly a vessel because you are a vessel for childbearing of the next Christian generation. There's this idea of being possessive and controlling. And it's like, okay, well, God, the whole earth is God's. God owns you. You are God's slave. You take Pauline texts and you say that you are a slave to Christ. Like there, there is inherently some abusive stuff in there. There's this idea of manipulation. And while that one, we're like, eh, I think we use things like providential language or the idea of uh, kind of Calvinistic ideas about time and how God works. And then there's this idea that, uh, like, in emotional abuse, that your feelings are constantly dismissed. And and I'm like, I'm like, oh, all of those were things that were taught to me theologically as virtuous, faithful, good things. And then we practice them not necessarily in relationships, but in evangelism, which is bad that I disconnect those. But that's how evangelicalism thinks about evangelism: (laughs) is like, I'm a superior, dominating force in your life that makes you better. But when I think about all of those things, I'm like, oh, I learned all of that shit theologically well before I learned it relationally. Yes. And so I'm, oh, I feel yeah. aware of the God complex, the God construct, maybe. Yeah, I feel aware of the God construct that I was given that was inherently emotionally abusive. And that made it so much harder for me to believe people who had been emotionally abused and to identify emotional abuse as I see it. Yes, absolutely. Like, I'm, I'm thinking about the aspects of like projection, right? Um, The lack of empathy that you see in all of these, I mean, now all these studies, right? Doctor, uh, I think her name is Dr. Raya. She's on YouTube. And I remember first learning about narcissism after I left. I mean, it had gotten to uh, enough of a point where it was like, uh, my daughter, uh, she can't, I'm gonna take this risk. And I knew that like people would still be upset 
for me to leave because you can work it out because maybe just do counseling. And that's the thing, like do counseling, but, but see a Christian counselor, like don't see a worldly counselor uh-huh. because, you know, we, we definitely need somebody to reinforce the bullshit. And so like at that point, you know, kind of my ex at the time it was interesting because my, my grandfather passed away and um, we were really close. We go to a funeral uh, and I see a cousin that I don't know. And the cousin comes up and says hello to me. And and this is just typical behavior, but this was like the final. Uh, and I get ringed at my grandfather's uh, gravesite. So already like we're, it's COVID. So we're in the car, we have to look out the window um, and I'm trying to handle this. My cousin comes up, says hello. And I get yelled at because I didn't introduce someone and I'm supposed to honor this person. Anybody in my family that didn't know my ex needed to know him right there in that moment when I'm trying to mourn my grandfather's death. We go home uh, and I'm reamed all the way home. And um, I had a pattern of like, kind of like taking a break. So I would like leave. um, And then I would talk to a Christian spiritual parent um, who also shows up in the the book, but uh, she would always convince me to go back. I go back um, and I'm giving Harlem a bath and I get the whoomp, like something hits me in the back. You're such an effing bitch. You're a horrible mom. And um, Harlem, uh, say, mommy, you're a piece of shit. And uh, it was something about, I mean, it wasn't the first time he said that to me, but it was hearing Harlem say Mm -hmm. it that really kind of like, um, wait a minute. Like, I can't, first, my first thought was like, I can't grow up in a home where my daughter feels free to speak to me like that. Um, and the other thing is that my daughter doesn't know any different. So I, it was just such a moment of like hearing that little voice say that to me. And mm-hmm. for some reason it just flashed. And like this, it was a weird, it was a visceral thing. And I just, I saw the future and I was like, this isn't gonna change. It's been nearly five years. Uh, it hasn't changed. And um, Harlem is either gonna witness a lot of violence um, because at that point I was ready to snap. Like I looked over, there was like a cast iron pan. I looked at Harlem and I just ran, I left. Um, and so obviously I had to go back and get her, but that was the day I left. And I remember in the midst of all of that, the first thing, um, that happened was I texted two church folks and both of them were like, well, just give it 24 mm. hours. Um, and something Okay, and so like, you know, I'm I'm in the room, I'm in a hotel room, and the spirit says to me, I saved you. And I, like, it was weird, because I was not on white evangelicalism, you know, I was coming out of that part, but I was still in this marriage, because I thought it would give me some credibility while I was mm-hmm. figuring the rest of the shit out. Yeah. But like, I just felt like maybe there was layers to that. Um, and I kept saying, please don't make me go back please don't make me go back this time. And um, I think I had a friend who had uh, done ministry with me in Kansas City and is now like an atheist. Uh, And she just texted me. She was like, what do you want to do? It was the first time anybody asked me that. Mm. Uh, It was the first time anyone asked me that. Um, And I'm like remembering all this stuff now from therapy, like, okay, what's my body feeling? And and then it was just like, I don't know, the last three days, the next three days were kind of a blur. I took her and I moved out. Uh, 
and then the rest is, you know, kind of history, whatever. And then COVID hit. I'm so glad um, that I was like out mm-hmm. before that. I don't know what would have happened. I don't know if I would be here. I don't know if Harlem would be here yeah. um, if we had been quarantined yeah. in that home. Mm-hmm. Like, it, so there is so much of that that felt like people would always give me their own examples of bullshit happening in their marriages as if that was supposed to make me feel confident in going back. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, my husband threw a glass at me once. It's okay, you know, they deal with anger sometimes and we just have to pray. And like, you need to be asking yourself kind of like, what are you doing to provoke this? Um, like, you know, you always have to let your yes be yes and your no be no. Uh, Cause my ex had like a, a history of losing jobs. And so like the financial things that were happening, I was trying to make decisions that would help kind of financially and and every response I would get would be like, you gotta let your yes be yes. And then um, the final, so I, I get Harlem, I moved to Richmond and then he attacks me and my, my new partner uh, and my spiritual parents showed up to court, uh, to custody court to testify on his behalf because I was queer. Mm. And to me, all of that encompasses the bullshit of purity culture and whiteness and how they are enmeshed um, and the ways that it is impossible for abuse not to grow out of that cesspool of toxicity. Uh, because it, it, like, these people still to this day think they were being faithful to Jesus. Um, and so the fact that a person could be so dehumanized and victimized and brutalized and that obedience to Jesus means that they need to continually sub- subject themselves to that. Uh, it was kind of like, okay, well then I'm not a Christian mm-hmm. <laughs> anymore, mm-hmm. right? Like I just could not, There's and there are layers, you know, and I, I've never told this story publicly. So I'm kind of like trying to make sure I'm like my feet are on yeah, the ground. Regulated. But, um, but that's kind of what happened. And I think the, it was, interesting because the people who helped me get out of the situation because I had no money when I came out as queer those people rejected so I think there are still elements that show up uh, in the ways that this thing has infiltrated and I think all of it is because we never actually stopped and looked at purity culture and said this is bullshit like this is not actually this is no way to live I don't even think it's the way we were designed to live. And so what what does that produce in people? Yeah. Abusers and people who are abused. Yeah. It's an unfortunate thing. It really is. Yeah. Unfortunate is maybe uh, the undersell of the century. Yes. <laughs> in that. You ain't that. <laughs> I, well, first, I just want to honor um, you sharing your story. I recognize that that is not a small thing to both uh, mm-hmm. unearth things that are in some way processed or are being processed. Because I know that for me, oftentimes when I tell a story for the first time, I find myself processing it in new ways. And so I just want to honor mm-hmm. that you've given us the gift of your story as even an interpretive frame and as a part of yourself, like that it can be both of those things. And so I want to honor that. Mm-hmm. And I think the specific, one of the specific pains, like there's, there is the abuse in and of itself, which is so horrific and so troublesome and so I'll use a Christian word, sinful, so sinful. <laughs> and I think there's a specific type of pain of having your community be so lost in the sauce of all of this stuff that there actually isn't even room for you in your own experiences to experience it as you are. And I think I'm wondering a little bit what 
what do you think people are thinking when they're giving you that advice? Because I, I, I think that when I think about how Christians give this advice of stay in abusive marriages, give it 24 hours, win your partner back, forgive, be gracious, it seems like they are super divorced from the practical implications that are happening on the body and eject all of that for the sake of something spiritual. And I think I actually have some confusion around what those people think that they're protecting or what they think that they're doing. And I'm curious if you have any thoughts about about that. Like what when people are asking you to be faithful, to do the fa- quote unquote faithful thing, what is it that they believe yeah. they are asking you to do on a grand scheme that would because to me it feels a little I don't like wild to or illogical in every way to do that, but there's some kind of logic that's playing out. And I'm curious if you have any thoughts about what that logic might be that's playing out. I think so. And I can think, I'm thinking of January 6th because I think it's the same logic. It's they're protecting the myth. Um, And the myth is that Christian marriages are better marriages because we have Jesus and everybody's playing the role the way they were designed to play the role. And because of that, there is divine order and it's bullshit right because we don't even see the way you know the stuff that they say about like god um the way that god designed marriage in genesis 3 which i don't see that happening Mm -hmm. but in addition to that it's kind of like none of the none of the people even in the list in hebrews right like none of their marriages were white middle class american nuclear families Mm -hmm. they had concubines i mean women's everybody was doing everybody so like there is no precedence for even what they have held up but it does that precedence comes from like puritanism it comes from whiteness um and so somehow someone conflate conflated that this was somehow god's design and that it needed to be protected um and i think it's the same myth that of white is like white Jesus myth, right? And we protect that myth too, because everything will crumble. And and all evangelicalism seems to be at this point is damage control. And just every, you know, like in like Stepford Wives or like Wrinkle in Time where they're all bouncing the ball, like everybody just smiling, grin, <laughs> everybody, there's nothing going on behind the curtain. Everything's mm-hmm. fine. To God be the glory. Yeah. Jesus is risen. God reigns. His kingdom is coming. Y'all are just saying a whole bunch of things, but no, because if you were to examine it, the whole house of cards would come down and there are too many goodies, right? Involved in the myth. And there's too much like security involved in the myth. Uh, like if, I mean, what happens if the myth crumbles? And so we we fight to protect it. And I think, and that's not to say, that's not to talk about people in a malicious way. It's to say, I think that's what they're protecting. They're really, their um, mistreatment of me, their arguments for my exploitation were because of their own self-preservation efforts, totally. right? Like, like you can't don't bring that shit over here and cause my house to start crumbling Mm -hmm. (laughs) like you better go back home you know put on your lingerie and be like you know boaz and sit at the feet like don't bring that shit over here Mm -hmm. and i think now like i'm realizing that it is so um terrifying 
for all of your foundational systems to start shaking yes. because people name their kids, they pick their spouses, they pick their cities in which they live. They pick the damn car they drive based on this ideal of a nuclear family, based on these myths of white Jesus. And so like, they don't want you messing with their stuff. Like you will not replace us. You know, it's this replacement myth. Like people are afraid of that. Um, and so the same thing that drove those people to show up on January 6th is the same thing that told that lady to like, tell me to drive back home. <laughs> Even after this man really had a one-year-old call me, tell me to that I was a piece of shit, mm -hmm. like, and really that that was being faithful to Jesus and that, that, that in that moment, they were um, pushing me towards godliness and upholding the sanctity of marriage. Um, and that's ridiculous to me now. Absolutely. Um, but I can't say that I would have, I didn't push back. I mean, I, I, I wanted to be godly. Mm -hmm. um, and what's it going to look like? I don't have any, I don't have a reason to leave for real. Like, I don't have like a, you know, I'm not, I don't have a black eye and a busted mm -hmm. lip, you know, I don't have any bruises. I haven't reported anything. So I know that if I try to leave and I wanted to leave year one, mm -hmm. um, year one, yeah. um, but I just kept, there's nothing to spin here and the embarrassment of it. And it, ha it must've been your fault. Um, uh, and so it, I, I, I feel regret about that. Mm -hmm. Uh, about being so addicted to my own ego and so addicted to my own hype and spin that I stayed because I I knew that I could not find anyone to back that decision. Yeah. And, I, and I was so desperate for someone to affirm that leaving my marriage didn't mean I didn't love Jesus. Mm -hmm. Uh and it was a difficult, it was a difficult journey. And obviously that was a while ago. Yeah. So, uh, in hindsight, I can see all those things now, but in the middle of it, it was very difficult. Of course. And, and I think I hold even past you with so much tenderness because so many of us are just doing the best we can. And we're told that the best yeah. that we can do is to follow a certain doctrinal expression of evangelical Christianity, because that's the thing that's going to keep us the most yes. safe long term. And when we yes. find ourselves unsafe or harmed, we just look to like future glory or we go, hey, this suffering is just like this present suffering is nothing compared to the glory that's set out before you in Christ. You know, it's it's all this kind of dogma, really. And what feels so challenging is that you combine that with this theology that you're describing that is a marriage is this ultimate witness and it's the truest picture of Christ mm -hmm. in the church. And so if it fails, what does that say about God? And when you take that mm. alongside this idea that martyrdom and victimization are redemptive in our kind of penal substitutionary mm. atonement theories, you have victimization, mm -hmm. martyrdom, and marriage being the ultimate symbol of God's love. And so if that is the case, then violence isn't the thing that's going to compromise a witness. Being wrong is. And so many people give their entire mm -hmm. lives to marriages trying to prove that God was right in saying that marriage was the thing that was most going to save the world or to save us as people or to sanctify us or make us holy, that when that starts to crumble, we do all kinds of protective gymnastics in order to stay in spaces that are unhealthy because if not, God is wrong. And when God is wrong, our entire worldview starts to crumble. And so I have a lot of tenderness for folks who are processing those kinds of experiences and disillusionment because mm -hmm. 
to see the ultimate symbol that you've been taught about God fail is to see God fail, is mm-hmm. to have to question many other things that have been structurally sound, even if functionally violent. Yes. I mean, it means it's it's rickety, right? Like, uh, I used to watch uh, New Girl, and I remember that uh, Nick on the show, he used to fix things with in the most rickety ways. But you, you, you had to keep everything together like because if you move this one sort of popsicle stick with a duct tape on Uh it the whole like you know toilet is going to explode and the house is going to flood and it's like so we have to keep our finger on this duct taped popsicle stick right um and it's funny but I, I I envision that that's kind of what is happening I think somewhere intrinsically we know that this thing is rickety and it don't hold together, and these parts don't fit together. And y'all have tried to make some sort of structure that can't hold nothing. Um, and so, like, instead of pretending, um, I I think that like if we really believe what we say we believe about Jesus and about the Creator, then like it should be okay if we let the damn thing crumble. Like it should be fine. It, because we serve a creative God and we serve a Jesus who not even death could defeat. So like, I don't, I'm, I'm not sure what, I'm not sure how much life is in protecting something we know doesn't work when really we have historical, you know, witness of people who have trusted and said, I'm going to actually do the thing. I'm going to actually, I'm actually going to have the audacity to believe that God is kind and merciful and that, you know, beauty can come from ashes and that that death um, is not the end, but that life goes on, that things live again. And um, I think that is the the question that I think we need to be asking ourselves. I mean, it's like that serious of a question when we think about some of these marriages and some of these relationships and some of even the churches that we're a part of. We have to stop asking whether or not God is right or wrong and ask do we believe in life after death? Uh, because the only way out of this is through death. Um, and that means, what I mean by death is just, you know, like a, lo- a loss of everything, even your own reputation, yes. even who you thought you were. Yeah. Um, that has to die if you want to live. And I'm like, on this other side of that horrific, I mean, we I mean, we were in communication during that time in the initial stages. It was, it was sour and sad but b i am happier than i have i did not know you could be happy like this mm. and it doesn't it's not the like pollyanna white christianity happy it is like being being known and uh being loved and being honored but then also like having values that align and having the option <laughs> to find someone that you can love i mean really when especially a queer person in the church, like you got really limited options. It's either like find you a find the opposite uh sex, quote unquote, um, or be celibate. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> Those are your options. Yeah. But I'm out here and I'm like, it's a whole spectrum of types of people to fall in love with that. Like, and we are all so diverse and complex that to limit our options for finding love um and belonging to something so binary is really harmful. It really is. Totally. And, and those words that you describe or that you just used, you use the words known, loved, and honored. 
And to me, those feel like really Christian principles. But when we have a foundational mm. theology of domination and dominion about the earth and about Christians' role in the world, knowing, loving, and honoring don't actually become the center. Extraction, objectification, control, and domination become the center. And, it, and it's, I'm hearing in your story the ways that when extraction and objectification and domination were pulled out from your story, that you had space to be known and loved and honored. And so I think really often about that, yeah, that concept of domination and dominion, because in a lot of church spaces, we are taught, you know, you need to go dominate the earth, you need to have dominion over all things. And then when you get married, it's like, well, okay, but not there exactly. Like, not like that. Like, we're taught that we're yes. to be powerful and controlling over all things. And then in marriage, there's suddenly these roles that define how you're supposed to be yes. in those spaces that create so much context for abuse and violence and hostility. And there's this contrast that I find to be really present in Christian space where, where they'll be like, especially complementarians will be like, we're not hostile toward women. And I'm like, okay, the theology is inherently... <laughs> violent in and of itself and its implications are violent and there's enough data to back that up in plenty of ways but it's not just that there is hostility toward women non-binary folks queer folks trans folks it is that there is a benevolence toward men and that when men are given yes. the benefit of a doubt constantly and are considered benevolent actors for the sake of god's mission there is so much leniency toward dysfunction violence and domination and the way that we justify that is by slapping the word discipline on it and we use that word discipline two ways mm. we use it in the spiritual discipline way that people who people need to submit to be disciplined to be rigorous in our trying to save abusers and problematic people because jesus already did everything on the cross so how dare we abandon mm -hmm. that mission of jesus but also this concept of discipline as, like you described earlier in our conversation, this person is now the leader and head of my household and therefore needs to discipline in order to create a godly unit. And so I see all kinds of ways that those ideologies play together that make all of this really, really possible, that make abuse really possible, that make disentangling from it almost impossible, and that yes. allow particularly men in church spaces to be abdicated of responsibility by their own supposed benevolence. Mm. Mm. I don't know why they hit me so deep. <laughs> Woo. I'm learning, uh, I'm learning to just let things hit. And I think like one of the ways that I'm pushing back against even the, like the culture in which we live, the sort of empire that we live is like when something is profound and touches me deeply, that it's okay to take the space and let that thing go all the way down. <laughs> um, because I was so used to like sparring back and forth and not sparring in the sense of like arguing, but you know, soundbite, 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 like a tennis, but really this is communion and I need to let things hit me. Um, and so I'm, I'm just taking the space for that because I think the idea that men with like, almost no necessity of proving it are given the benefit of the doubt of not only being right in a situation, but also benevolent. And I had not thought about that, but I'm thinking about if, if Jesus, imagine if Jesus is, if Jesus is abusing the church, I think why Jesus 
is abusing the church. Mm-hmm. Okay. I think why Jesus is an abusive husband. And so um, if that's what you're experiencing, then a lot of these men might even feel their own things coming up in the sense of like, well, they're experiencing the abuse too in a different way, <laughs> but they're experiencing narcissistic abuse from their savior or the person who called them to ministry or the person who's expecting them to be a man's man. Yeah, and like all of these things, I mean, the pressure of whiteness and purity culture is unbearable. Uh, and it, and we've seen that the fruit is not good. Um, there's not good fruit coming out of it. And so I'm hoping that people can find some courage and hopefully um, permission from folks who still love Jesus ardently, but are who but who are freer than they've ever been, um, that that would give courage and permission that like, hey, Jesus is around that corner, too. And like, but you do have to die and live like you can't like you do have to experience some loss and it hurts. It, um, it hurts a lot. It really does because so much of it isn't just the loss of a foundational relationship in which you were promised many things. It is the betrayal of people that you thought were safe and close. And I think for many folks, that is the harder death to die than the partnership or the or the various types of abuse that are happening. It is the loss of the full community around you that suddenly theologizes why your existence and why your safety doesn't matter to Jesus. And it makes sense to me that many people who have experienced every type of abuse would believe that Jesus doesn't love them because church people go a really long way to tell us that through a lot of niceties and that tell us that the responsibility to engage with all of that falls on the abused person who then needs to forgive, reconcile, hide the truth, defend the abuser's name, and do all of that in the name of Jesus. And I'm just finding that to be so challenging to engage with, because when we combine that with some of the statistics around what happens when people report abuse, like there was a study, this was like in the 80s, and I'm sure it's probably the same now. They studied like 5,700 pastors, and uh, 26% of pastors would tell people being abused submit and trust god and trust that god would honor her action by either stopping the abuse or giving her strength to endure it and 71 percent of pastors would never advise a person who was being physically abused to leave their husband or separate because of that abuse and i'm like there is some theological nonsense that is playing out there on every level that i think makes the kind of freedom that you're describing really challenging and that allows those folks, those church leaders, those Christian people to say that they were doing their best to be faithful and therefore frame every person who has been abused as inherently unfaithful. And it allows abusers to then jump into more marriages quickly or more partnerships quickly where they do the same things and then are able to expand some kind of view that it's actually not about them. It's about something about gender, something about sexuality, or something about the culture. And I'd rather just take it from those large abstract concepts and just say, the church produces men who are unable to see their own dysfunction because it is covered at every corner and therefore are allowed to and enabled to do all sorts of violence, emotional, physical, sexual, spiritual, because it's about God. It becomes about God. And I think I, I think for many folks who are hearing this conversation and are hearing some of their own experiences named, 
Jesus don't need you to stay in order for Jesus to be faithful. Jesus don't need any of that from you. And yeah. so I just feel like there's some ways that, I don't know, I, I would love for us to give some frames yeah. of reference for folks who might either find themselves in situations of abuse or who are supporting people who are in situations of abuse to be able to engage differently. And I do want to name that there's like, this is one conversation of many that we could have about abuse. We haven't talked really about sexual yes. abuse, which in the purity culture context is its whole own other thing. Like marital rape is so prevalent and so present. And there's just things that we're not mm -hmm. going to be able to hit today. And I'm not, I don't even know why I have to use violent language for that, that we're not going to to be able to get into today. But I want to name that those are all valid and real things that fall into the larger conceptual frameworks. But I would love if you could just talk to folks who are experiencing abuse or who are adjacent to folks who are. What are some things that you wish you would have known then that you know now or some frames that you think could be helpful for folks? Because I don't want to name this conversation in terms of, okay, maybe I'll say it this way. I know that for folks who are in the thick of it, that no amount of advice can necessarily break through the pathologies that Christianity has given us that keep us in abusive situations. But I do, I have this framework for friendship, which is like, I always want to be the honest friend. So if there's a dynamic, I want to name it yes. so that when the thing falls apart, that person knows I was trustworthy and was paying attention. And so I think there's that kind of, I'm holding that view and, and just asking what advice might you give to folks who are in or adjacent to these situations? Yeah, I mean, I, I think I would take that honest friend advice and apply it to your discipleship relationship with Jesus. I think there's only one way to find out. There's only one way to find out. A lot of times, it's like Truman Show. So a lot of times, the all of the language, that vitriolic language, the fear language and the dog whistling, all of that is designed to keep you in this space. Um, and they're saying, there's no light out there. There's no life out there. Um, out there, you will die. You know, it's so dangerous out there. And I say, there's only one way to find out. Look at your experience for what it is and go, is this, if, if you had, I remember I was reading a thing the other day that was talking to uh, parents of queer kids and it was like, ask your kid if I was going to be okay with whatever came out of your mouth, what would you say? regarding your sexual orientation or your gender identity. And I would say, if you knew that God was going to be there when you walked outside the door, would you go? Um, and so then I would say, okay, so let's build on that. You do have theology that says God is where you go. He meets you where you are. You do have theology that says, I will be found by you when you seek me. You do have theology that says God is faithful, right? And so it's okay to pack that theology up in your little knapsack and walk the hell out the door. Mm -hmm. Like, I think that the only way to know whether you're going to be okay is to try. Um, and I think for me, I stayed in my marriage because I believed that I was done. I mean, really like you go, you get married, you have kids and you host Bible studies until you die. <laughs> um, and your husband joins the elder board, yeah. like, you know, like that's life. Um, and so I think for me, I had to go, there's got to be more than this. Like, like I can't live like this. And it got to just be like, even if there's not anything out there, this is not okay. Um, and I'll be okay. Um, and so I'm, I think my honest friendship is like, you be honest, be an honest friend with Jesus. And if the thing falls apart 
in terms of you and your relationship with God, at least everything was on the table. And the only way for that to happen is for you to take seriously what God says about your worth and your dignity and your value. Um, take God seriously, like in that, apply it to your situation and ask yourself what you see and whether or not what you see warrants you trusting God and leaving the Truman Show. A hundred percent. And it feels like in that way, if your only reasons to stay in a marriage are spiritual, that is not enough. Oh, because if your only reasons to stay in a relationship are spiritual, it means that God does not care about you. It means that your God does not care about your body or your well-being and that God is more concerned with God's own reputation as it relates to you rather than you yourself. And I think that God is much more... Which is narcissism. It is. And, and I want to name that it's just... When we believe that the only reasons to stay are spiritual and that we should sacrifice ourselves, like Jesus did on the cross, this narcissistic God that we say that we serve will never come through for us. And I think it makes us believe or assume that things are going to get better for only spiritual reasons. And that if you give up on a person or a relationship, that it's a distrust of Jesus when I think that actually a lot of the time when we leave situations of abuse, it is a deep trust in Jesus that Jesus will care for both us and for the person that we are leaving and that we don't need to be their savior. Because so much of the rhetoric that is given specifically to women around abusive partners is that you need to stick around to save your man and that you need to stick around mm -hmm. to save your partner. And I know we've had this conversation in binary language and, and, I, and I know that, the, that abuse expands far beyond gender binaries and that there are yes. men who are abused in relationships, but I think I want to not miss the rule for the exceptions, at least statistically. And so, so I do want to name that. Yes. But I just, I think it's really important that if your only reasons to stay are spiritual, that it is okay to, and maybe even more trusting in Jesus to leave situations and trust that Jesus is going to do his own redemptive work and that it's not our job to play God in other people's distancing from abuse because they may never do it and we may spend our whole lives trying to save people who will only do us harm and assume that jesus wants that for us and that kind of corrupted view of jesus's love and jesus's care and jesus's interest in our own bodies and well-being to me is so much more costly than for in a lot of situations than the cost of leaving though i know for some people the cost of leaving will be the highest thing that they will ever pay in their lives you really can't you can't save pe people in survival mode can't save or be saved. So it's it's not working. Well, I guess then I would love to give advice for one more group of people, and that's the folks who are friends of folks who they might suspect of being in abusive situations. Um, for me, one is just that, like, I think you have to just assume that uh, you're not necessarily going, that the what you say and what you think is not necessarily going to stick, and it doesn't make it... Mm. It doesn't make what you think necessarily wrong. It just means that people need to be ready to make their own decisions and need to have their own moments. And us trying to force people into conclusions about their own life and marriages or partnerships or relationships or parenting is almost never particularly effective if people aren't ready. It doesn't mean we shouldn't tell the truth, but it does mean that it's not about you. Like I think a lot of us in these situations mm -hmm. make other people's decisions about us and our own success. And we play into the same dynamics of domination, dominion, mm -hmm. saviorship, and all of that. And so I think for folks who are adjacent to folks or in relationship with folks who are abused, I think part of it is just sticking around 
saying the thing and sticking around and being a person who is present and willing to engage even when it's chaotic and hard. Yeah, like I I do have to shout out my friends during that time, if that's okay, just because it was like uh, I was spinning a lot for my ex. My friends never lied to me about me. And they didn't, they didn't necessarily say, girl, you need to go. And they didn't say, girl, you need to stay. But they did say, girl, you are amazing, mm-hmm. <laughs> right? Like, we love you. And I think that constant affirmation of just who I was, of who, like, what I was worth. Um, and I don't think they were doing it deliberate. They were just being good friends. Um, but I think that even that in and of itself, when I left, it was consistent with what they already believed about me which was that I had worth and dignity. Um, so I shot out my friends like from, from Atlanta during that time um, because I really, I think that that was the, when I left and sent that initial text, the response really made it so that it was like, I can do this. I think I can do this. Shots out. That's so important. Morgan, Emmy, Ann, Brandy, Jazzy. That's so important. <laughs> Michelle. That's so important. Crystal. <laughs> I love that you had those people. And I hope that people who are listening have people like that who are willing to sit with them in the midst of things. Because I think you used this word before that I think is so prevalent for folks who are trying to leave situations of abuse, regardless of whether it's physical, emotional, spiritual, sexual, any of that. It's that it can feel so embarrassing because you made a promise in front of your friends and family to do a thing forever. And it somehow reflects on you that you couldn't make it work. And I just don't think that's true. And so I think having friends who can say, this is who you are and you are not your marriage. Your marriage is a part of who you are. It is a shaping factor. It is a relationship that you have chosen that is core, but it is not everything. And it is okay to not be 100% on all the things that you said when you were in a different place and when you didn't know what you know now. And so I think it can be really embarrassing. And I think that that space of embarrassment can keep us in things that are really, really unhealthy or dysfunctional. And I think it's just okay to hold that feeling of embarrassment and to trust that your own well-being and your own unlearning of toxic theologies and your own unlearning of what you think about what God thinks about you will help to curb some of that embarrassment. And then the last thing I would say is that like a lot of us, um, have been taught abusive practices and tendencies in our church experiences. And all of us have the responsibility to unlearn that shit, like to unlearn our need to dominate, our need to control, our need to manipulate, our need to be over and on top of things or people or projects, our need to have things go our way, our need to believe a certain story that we're given about our own power. Like, I think men are given a story about their own power that says if they are not powerful and above, then they are wrong and less close to God. I think women, non-binary and queer folks, trans folks are given a story about our power that says we need to give it up for the sake of the gospel or for the well-being of others. And so I think all of us have the work to do to unlearn our normalization of violence, our normalization of manipulation and control and abuse, our our normalization of leaving other people to their own stuff when many people just need a friend to say, hey, like, I see this thing, I don't know what's going on, but like, I see it. And so I think for many of us, we just need to do the hard work of unlearning in real time that would help us to not only have frameworks to understand what we are seeing or hearing or experiencing with others, but also that we would just be people who reflect a God who doesn't look like white dominating Jesus. 
Well, Tamise, I really appreciate you being on and sharing so much of your story and your experience. I, again, this is one conversation of many conversations that we could be having about these concepts. There's so much more than we can do in just like a single dialogue, but I really appreciate that. And I know that there is a cost for you in sharing that with me. And so I just hold that tenderly and I don't hold that as, I don't take that for granted at all. So I just really appreciate that. And I'm wondering if you want to plug anything. What are what do you have coming up? What's been going on for you? Hell yeah. Where can people find your work? Hell yeah. Hell yeah, I want to plug some. I want to plug my book. I just wrote a book mm-hmm. called Faith Unleavened, The Wilderness Between Trayvon Martin and George Floyd. Uh, and it just talks about how uh, I believe whiteness is that leaven, that invisible agent that gives rise to everything else that we see. Uh, in white evangelicalism, uh, white supremacy, whiteness. Mm. So it's out, it's uh, it's doing pretty well. People are, are responding pretty well to it. Um, so there's that, and then there's subculture. Uh, so if you wanna uh, be a donor, a partner, a client, uh, you can go to subcultureinc.org and help us keep black college students in school. We're trying to get them to and through. Mm. Um, so help us do that. Subcultureinc.org. Those are both, both great things. And I will link those in our show notes. But Denise, thank you so much for your time. I appreciate it so much. Awesome. Thank you for joining for another episode of Reclaiming My Theology. If you want to support the show, you already are by listening, but you can also subscribe, rate, review, or tell a friend about the show. You can also join us on Patreon at patreon.com slash reclaimingmytheology. I know I say it often, but I'm super grateful for this community and the challenging and life-giving work that we're doing together. If you have recommendations for guests or you have questions that you want to see answered on the show, please send those to reclaimingmytheology at gmail.com. We want participation because we know that we cannot create a show that is helpful for the community without the input of the community. And so with that, as you bring your questions, your curiosities, and all of the things that you're thinking about in this season, I hope that those things can help us do a little bit better together. See y'all next time. Thank you.